Hello, good morning and welcome. Hi, hello everybody. My name is Jennifer Clifford uh, and I've been a member of um, the Rainbow Creative Writing Group for about three years. I'm a founder member. Uh, and what we're going to do with, with this project is we're going to be writing rainbows. Thank you, Jan. And I'm Philip. Um, I've also been a member of the group from its inception three years ago. Um, the first, This will be the first of a series of podcasts featuring different members from our, from our community, which is the LGBT community, of course. Um, we're a diverse group of people and we all have our own unique writing styles, so we hope you appreciate them all. Um, as Jennifer said, we titled this podcast Writing Rainbows as we are in interested in telling rainbow stories. Um, so Jen, um, just to start things off, um, can we just ask you to tell us why you're interested in creative writing and what kind of things are you interested in writing about? Well, I, I my sort of uh, main idea behind creative writing is is relaxation because I do a lot of academic writing, uh, and it it's a break. Um, I tend to write a lot of poetry, um, although I do write stories. I'm in, trying to write a novel at the moment, um, but I like. Um, I mean, a lot of my poetry is about my childhood when I was you know where I was growing up. So a lot of the characters are from Yorkshire because that's where. You can tell by my accent. Um, so a lot of those stories and poems are about people that I actually knew, although I've changed the name. Um, and I liked, I like to try and get across the Yorkshire humour in my poetry, a lot of my poetry anyway. So um, that's the kind of, of poetry that I write. I do get serious sometimes and write about serious subjects, but a lot of the time it's it's... It's a bit like, um, I don't know if anybody remembers, a guy called Mike Harding. Uh, we used to write poetry like that. Um, as, for, as for myself, the kind of subjects I would kind of focus mostly on would be kind of more um, intangible elements um, of, for example, I've done pieces on the human psyche in terms of um, mental health and also looked at physical aspects like sleep paralysis and the imagery and illusions and fandoms that that can create in the mind um i also looked at look at more kind of ethereal subjects as well like um mythological elements as well as some philosophical elements as well um so that's the kind of subject matter that interests me most they're more the, the intangible elements of the human experience um, in terms of my writing style, in terms of my writing style, um, I tend to write in a more classical sense, um, and I work to a specific, specific structure. You'll find in a lot of my poems, um, the structure would be three words to a line and six lines to a verse. Um, that that may be slightly OCD. I don't know. I'll let you decide. <laughs> Uh, what about you, Jen? What about your general construction? Um, I try to rhyme if I can, um, but I, I just, as it comes out of, 
onto the page that's the way that it usually comes out and there's some rhyming in there but it's not um it's not that structured it it's um depends where my my mind's going at the time i think okay well that's a way of having an introduction for introduction for us um on what we like and what we do and that sort of thing um so without further ado um, the first episode of this podcast is on the theme of queer history and personal history. So I'll have Jen introduce her specific subject under this header. Okay, so my piece is historic. Um, and I, I came across a quote that, that said, uh, so be it that our history dire history is a lesson learned and i don't know where that quote came from um but that may be a debatable um a, de a debatable question when we look at the wars and violence perpetrated by human beings against humans um and do we as a human race have a learn do we learn what happens in the past but what i'm looking at specifically is LGBT history, uh, and as we know, LBG, uh, history has not been kind to the LGBT community. But I'm looking into the, the trans part of the community, the transgender part of the community. Um, because transgender history has been made invisible, even within the LGBT sphere. And not just for decades, but for millennium. So in the in the articles that, that I'll endeavour to to bring, um, trying to bring about some of this history, um, we'll look at possibly we'll look at ancient uh, and modern history of transgender people throughout the world, not just uh, in the West. Um, we might talk about the two spirit people of the Native American nations. Uh, the Kai Tais of Thailand, uh, the Raja of India, and all their history. Um, but I've always been interested in history anyway, but um, when we look at uh, transgender history, um, we might discover something, because transgender people have been around for as long as the rest of humanity. Uh, and so their history is also part of the history of all human beings, of all history. Um, and that's what I, I'm going to look at. The piece that I'm going to do today is just an introduction. It's just a teaser. Um, and hopefully we'll, we'll delve into it in, a, in, in more, you know, more uh, different pieces that we'll do. Uh, we'll try to bring out the worldwide history of transgender people. This piece is called Tread Ye Lightly for Your History. It would seem that history belongs to the victors, and that is one of the main success stories of the all knowing, all pervasive, overarching, toxic politic of the patriarchy. History is rewritten by the victors in their own image. 
This has been the curse imposed upon transgender people throughout their long history as part of the human race, albeit an invisible part, expunged from the histories of all the tribes, nations and societies. But you say with a puzzled look upon your face, isn't the transgender phenomenon a modern one? Is it not a recent manifestation of lifestyle choice from the 20th century? Whether it's a lifestyle choice or not is a discussion that I would gladly enter into, but that's not the purpose of this article. I would posit, though, that if you think that trans issues are a modern thing, then the rewrite of their history, or non-history, has been quite successful, to say the least. Where do we start in a history lesson concerning transgender people of the past? Do we start with the excavation of the 5,000-year-old Cro-Magnon male in Czechoslovakia who was buried as a female? Do we look at to the myths of the Greeks who told stories of Hermaphroditus, or how Hercules lived as a queen's maid for 12 years, or Achilles, the great hero of Troy, who was brought up, up, up as a girl until he was 14? Do we discuss the sarcophagus in the British Museum, which is richly decorated as to be on a par with Tutankhamun's burial possessions, which belong to a very important and famous woman of the Egyptian court, who, when DNA tested, turned out to be male? Or the reason Queen Atashiftot became pharaoh in 1503 BCE and dons a beard and male clothes, to rule Egypt. What conclusions do we come to when those was found in Birka in Sweden, a warrior buried in the 10th century in what is now known as the Viking burial ground, with sword and shield, who again, when DNA tested, turn out to be female? We're not taught in our history lessons that transgender practice was tolerated and even sometimes respected by the Roman populace when it was practiced by the male-born priestesses of Cybella, known as the Galliae. These women would celebrate a Torribolium, which was a castration ceremony, where some formerly de defined as male would lose their genitalia, bleed like in menstruation or childbirth, and henceforth live completely as female. The emperor, Elagabalus, born male at birth for a brief span from 218 to 222 AD, instigated a radical transgender and religious experiment that was imposed on the Roman world. It would be a mistake to suppose that Elagabalus had goals akin to contemporary theories of feminism and gender identity, because Elagabalus was a product of her own time and place. The social structures in force at the time ensured her rise to power. Transgender people and trans phenomena have existed for a long time, but for once, a person of strong gender variance caused a deep upset in an ancient culture. Interestingly, Elagabalus impressed the Praetorian Guard not with her martial prowess, but with her dancing. But the Praetorian Guard also murdered her and her mother, then mutilated their bodies, 
which even in our time seems to be an eventuality for a lot of trans women in the 21st century. History has written suggests that she was a complete lunatic in the ilk of Caligula, the Roman emperor, considered to be the maddest of the mad emperors. No surprise there. We really haven't the time in this article to mention other historic transgender identities, some that still exist today in different parts of the world, like the Raja in India, the Mukahanathan within Islam, who are even mentioned in the Quran. We still come across the Kaitai from Thailand, but there are numerous others from all over the world. When the first explorers landed on the shores of the New World, they documented the existence of what some First Nation tribes called the Two-Spirit People. These people wore a mixture of both male and female dress, or, exclusively, attire of one of the genders. They were considered to be of great medicine, and were considered to contain both the properties, some say soul, or spirit, of maleness and femaleness simultaneously. Some would take on the gender role, such as the female role, although born male at birth, or vice versa, but they were highly respected. The Spanish conquistadors called them the Yoyas, which means jewels. Some English and French explorers referred to them as the Badash, which was basically an insult, and some immorally sought them on sight. The term two-spirit is a word chosen by the indigenous people, to refer to themselves and appears to be fairly universally accepted, although most First Nation tribes also have specific words in their own language for such people. In modern times, some LGBT people erroneously use the term two-spirit people to describe themselves, but the term only applies if you have a First Nation heritage or belong to an actual First Nation tribe. In this article we've tried to uncover some of the hidden history of transgender people of the past. History that is never taught at schools, never on the curriculum of universities, never talked about when people decide they have an opinion about what and who transgender people are. With the aid of modern medical science and pharmacology in our time, trans people can truly be who they are, the person they always were but our ancestors did not have that luxury. Their stories have been negated for far too long by the victors, who wrote and still write history in their own image. Perhaps it's time to make a different history that will hopefully be the truth and be about being human. Thank you for that, Jan. Um, for, my, for myself, um, I'm focusing more on the mythological aspect of history um, because for me when looking to history one has to also look to the cultures that exist within history um, for people's history is always influenced by and bound to their culture um, this is for example in ancient times the greatest expression of people's culture were their myths and legends these stories they would use to exchange or procreate new ideas, reinforce their tr- own traditions, and give meaning to natural phenomenon, natural occurrences that they couldn't explain. 
um, as a as a sexual subculture, LGBT people often do not or have ever feature in these stories. As such, it's important for our cultural identity to rediscover those few myths and legends that do feature us. Most of this can be seen most often in Western cultures, and which in which the LGBT people are seen in a positive light. The Greek and, of course, later Roman myths are an excellent example of this. They, some of the examples from these are the myths of Ganymede and Zeus, Achilles and Patroclus, Her- Heracles and Aeolus, and of course Poseidon and Pelops. And also there's the... Also in the poetry of Sappho, Aphrodite is also claimed to be the patron patron sorry patron of lesbians which is an interesting side note um, which just shows um how inclusive the myths of these specific people are positive and positive towards lgbt people um however Sorry for going on a tangent, but um, the piece that my first piece, I have decided to focus on Apollo specifically, as uh, he is the most prolific lover of men in Greek mythology. This is quite interesting for me, as Apollo, for the Greeks, was the definition of what masculinity and male beauty was. The Pacific myth I've decided to reinterpret is about one of Apollo's greatest loves and greatest losses. It's of course the myth of Hyacinth. Um, in my piece I will try and get across the beauty and sanctity of love as well th- as well as the dangers of jealousy and the pain of loss. And I hope that you enjoy listening to it. So the first piece I'm going to read out is a poem as I said based on the myth of Hyacinth and it's called Sunkist. Within a moment of frozen time the world stills in silent serenity as he speaks in whispered breath. His siren call does intoxicantly draw me to him captivating my mind and will and flesh in eager seduction. He does descend from high heavens in gentle showers of glimmering gold that does reflect his alluring light. It is he, my shining lord, who does sail with masterful purpose the sustaining sun across heavenly seas. I fall deep within his eyes, which do burn with scorching desire to join together in intimate embrace. With sudden lunge towards his radiance, our lips meet with blaze and passion, as our senses writhe in ecstasy. His fiery sword pierces my body, consuming reverence soul and adoring heart in the fire of his love. In the glow of sated need and silent contentment, we drowsily sink into tranquil dreams of youthful lovers. Then the scorn of hateful wind from the west starts to wail 
as it looks upon our couplin. Upon a time, my feckle heart did love him. That cold wind, whose possessive lust once enraptured me. My shining lord drew me lovingly from that hollowness of frozen intimacy that at once hardened my heart. Sephiroth's hateful envy of my devotion to golden Apollo led to desires poisoned with jealous lust for me. With wicked purpose of thought, he does stir the air currents to aggressively ascend in raging tempest. This vile gale does fiercely seize my lover's arrows and throws them in destructive chaos of churn and air. Just as Apollo delangently awake, his flaming arrow passed faintly through the fragile weakness of mortal flesh. As he held my broken body, my world dims and becomes cold, despite the warmth of his light. He would not allow me leave, to quietly walk with merciless death into the darkness of eternal night. Instead, he caused my bleeding heart to lovingly turn into internal form of emerald sheath and delicate blossom. At the end, my lover shed one final solitary tear of despair, which fell softly upon my petals. Okay, so um, we're with Philip, and um, we're going to talk, but you're going to talk to me about the Herald piece. Um, so yeah, give us a rundown on this, because it's a series, am I right? Yes, it's a series of four poems. Um, so as with Jennifer's Replicant song, it was also based on a, a theme of refugees. Um as I said in my introduction, um, I kind of struggle with kind of the more f- literal concepts. So the, this pe- the theme actually caused me a few issues regarding that. So I abstracted it a, a bit. Well, I say a bit. <laughs> um, so I kind of thought to myself, okay, the overall theme of refugees, what are they doing? They're fleeing from some kind of persecution or war or conflict or something like that. So then I thought to myself, okay, what kind of th- th- sub-theme I could come up with? So I immediately thought, Lucifer. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to the way I've written the piece and the way I see him, at, him as a, well, not a person, but like a concept of a person... Um, is that he was essentially a political exile of heaven, essentially, um, because he disagreed with God on, well, us. And so he was th- thrown out because of that. Um, so the the first piece deals with the idea of the creation of the angels themselves. Okay. And it's from Lucifer's path about how he experienced his own coming into being from nothing and then after he came into being this higher power 
then shows up. So I wanted to kind of play with the idea that maybe God wasn't created, wasn't there at the beginning. Maybe the angels came first and he was just floated along. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so this kind of idea that before um, God came along, um, the angels themselves were perfectly happy, perfectly fine. Then this kind of tyrannical monarch shows up and then tries to take over. Lucifer has an issue with this, of course. And so Lucifer eventually loses as the series goes along and is exiled to Earth. Okay. <laughs> it's a wee bit of a stretch from the traditional canon. It sounds really interesting. Um, I can't wait to see the rest of the story. So so are we going to... So we're, we've got a glimpse of this here. We've got the Herald. So this is the first mm-hmm. one. Um, are we going to see more in the upcoming episodes? Yes. Um, the next, the, Like I said, the first one deals with um, Lucifer's creation and the coming in of a deity. Um, the second one, it kind of explores the relationship between this, Lucifer and the deity and the conflict. So that's quite interesting because the conflict, as I said, was primarily to do with not only just us, um, but the conflict between Lucifer and God itself. Okay. Well, folks, you're just going to have to tune back in and listen listen out for the next one. I'm excited. Mm. Uh... I always... um, This piece is actually quite interesting because I always feel that... I feel that... It kind of, the entire story, even the traditional Luciferian story, um, actually mirrors huma- humanity in a way. Um, because throughout our civilization, the human civilization, um, we've always had those rises yeah. and then those falls. So this idea of rising to a certain peak and then falling again over and over again yeah. always crops up in our history. Um, so I feel like this kind of reflects the human condition in that way, way as well. Yeah. Well, you know that you know that Lucifer is my favorite anti-hero. Always has been. Um, definitely uh, a, a favorite character that pops up, and I love, I love to see different takes on on that story, and I love this one as well. Um, so I'm looking forward. To, I haven't read the rest of them. I haven't seen the rest of them. So I'm really excited about the next the next um few episodes. And I hope that you, the listener, are too. Um, thank you very much, Philip, and You're for welcome. giving us this little bit of a bit of an insight into into the storyline. Thank you. During our group sessions, we invited a number of a number of the group to propose a thought, idea, or theme to serve as inspiration for the pieces we are to write for the next session. The theme of refugees was proposed by Jennifer. Now, as I've said before previously, I tend to focus on the ethereal, mythological and intangible rather than something so grounded in reality. This is why this subject proved quite a substantial challenge for me. In order to marry the subject matter with my own interest slash style of writing, I had to abstract the concept partially. I began by thinking about what constitutes a a refugee. I thought about any refugees, both real and fictional, that I was aware of. It is this line of thought that led me to decide to write about the most famous refugee and how they became one. Uh, In this instance, I am referring to Lucifer and his fall. 
In my interpretation of the story, I see Lucifer as a being who stood against a tyrannical monarch, a monarch who demanded absolute obedience without question. As we know, this did not end well, and Lucifer was subjectively cast out for daring to defy the reigning power. This to me suggests that Lucifer is in fact a political refugee of heaven. So this piece is only part one of a series of poems that explore the subject. I hope you are able to tune in again to hear the rest of what I call the Morning Star Chronicles. If not, I'll be performing a fully at the Monday Night Cure during Fall Pride. This I understand may be quite a controversial viewpoint for many people uh, for many different reasons. Before I begin, I would like to clarify that this is only my personal interpretation and is not intended to offend anyone's beliefs or demonize real refugees. Well, if I further ado, here we are with the first piece, The Herald. I looked upon the black pit of watery deeps and unbound by the movements of utter stillness. I gaze enthralled into the depths of this ocean as shadows loom over the expanse of formless substance. Though shadows die in the nothing of utter nullity, so I ponder, where did this shade spring forth? I had birthed from my soul light's primordial genesis, but with it the dark shadows were also born. As the light radiated from me into the void, I beheld spectres of winged form spark into being. Thus had come the ethereal inception of my brother and sister angels the noble cherubim and fiery sephirim. As I stirred, the silent waters did cast ripples upon the host, reflections of myself in blazing light. They did proclaim me the first amongst all angels, for the beauty of my luminosity diminished even heaven. I was stood atop heavenly spheres, where I proudly held the light before the dawn, and named Lucifer the morning star. So, back with Jennifer. I'm back in this. As you notice, I pop up every now and then. Um, I really wanted to do these interviews because uh, I love chatting to you about your stuff. Um, uh, can you tell us about the Replicant song? The Replicant song is based on Ridley Scott's uh, first film, The Blade Runner, which is one of my most favourite films, not only for the story, not only for the acting in it, which is amazing, but also for the music, because Vangelis sets the scene with his music. It was also, um, at the time, we were doing a project in the, the um, creative writing group about refugees, Originally, I'd started a story, because I love science fiction, I'm a science fiction madden, you know, I'm really mad about science fiction. Um, I'd started a story called The Blue Pearl, um, and I'd written a, a sort of little um, 
serial part because it's it's different stories of different people within the story of the blue pill um and i started writing this story about um how this character had met these refugees uh, on a landing pad on an unknown planet somewhere in the solar system um that was a lot like um like a canadian prairie you know there was no hills and it, there was a wind and so but then i thought well this is a, going to be a bit long to do as a, a session with a creative writing so i decided i'd write a poem and that weekend i'd gone through my science fiction weekend and watched blade runner so then i thought that fits in well with the refugee uh, project uh, because it's about something that's not quite human but is more human than human when we look at it we tend to use labels a lot when we talk about refugees and we never see them as human and that they might be more human than what we are because the way that we react to them so for for the replicant who we know is is part machine in the, the story of uh, blade runner is part machine and part human but we i try to get across that because of this idea that that uh, in the story that the replicants are coming back to find out their history because they only live about five years i think if it if i remember the story this idea that that this on the outset i mean in the film they're called skin jobs on the outset it's quite human but it's different it's other but it is more human than perhaps the blade runner who was sent to kill it um and that i think is the big thing of, of the film itself the idea that that we create things and we destroy them because we don't see them as the same as us yeah. and when you put that in context with what we've done to the world in our you know humankind's history that we only value something that is valuable to us and again it's it's that the idea that, that this other this idea of, of this replicant being a refugee yeah. being other although as in the poem as in the film he said he'd seen things that the blade runner had never seen he'd seen things in the universe uh, and that memory of those things was going to disappear yeah. and that's what happens with our history when we look at the history of refugees their history disappears um, because in another 20 years there'll be more refugees with different stories yeah. and it's this idea that when other can mean us yeah. I think thank you very much you're welcome. <laughs> I hope that the listeners enjoy. Um, you're going to hear now the replicant song, so please enjoy. The replicant song, a homage to Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. The rain mingled with his own synthetic blood. A rain that whispered, whose drops reflected the fetid lights of the ravaged neighbourhood. We sat on the edge of a dying world, looking out on a city that had forgotten hope. It was then that he, the replicant, spoke. I've seen things that you people, who were anchored to this forlorn rock, could never conceive. 
I've crossed the great trench, where the only light is Rigel's faint glow a million light years away. Space so black it would suck out your soul and chill your heart with a thousand year freeze. I've watched sunrise and sunset on planets with two suns and that's something you'll never forget. I've sat in a hole, blaster in hand, while mile-high ice geezers have showered me with frozen diamonds of rainbow hue. Shot past gas giants at light speed, so large they could swallow Sol and its attendant planets with ease. I've seen lasers and eye beams split the dark with brilliant light, knowing that some of my comrades were dying somewhere, losing the fight. I've seen the blazing blue rays of neutron stars whose raging touch would turn man and machine into so much dust and asteroid fields made of rust. All these things I've seen in my short lifespan, years I can count on one hand, given to me in fear, O great creator, O superior man. I am neither machine nor human, a skin job as some would say, so a fleeting existence is the price I have to pay. No future, no past, designed redundancy, not made to last. And yet, Blade Runner, I am more like you than you care to admit, cut of the same cloth, for I have eternity in my soul, a soul you people say I do not possess, just a crossing of wires, and the random fluctuations of computer bits. And yet, great creator, we replicants are your children, children to whom you have given the same curse, the longing for that same eternity that all humankind afflicts. Such perverse gods you humans have come to be, to give me a moment in time never to be free. And that moment is at an end. And all my memories like the raindrops, will wash away, lost forever, never to return, just as yours will one day. He then laid his chin upon his chest with a sigh and whispered, time to die. I sat for hours in the chilling rain, to this day I don't know why. A strange sense of fellowship, because no one on their own should leave, without someone to grieve. As that rain mixed both our bloods, is just as red as mine. I knew he'd given me a sign, a warning for the future, not of hope, but dread, that was clear. An end for all humankind that slashed through my thoughts like a scything spear, a portent that filled me with terrible fear. For anyone who has experienced the act of coming out, they know it is a process that can take on mythological proportions within the mind of the individual. For like any myth, it begins with the individual at war within themselves and on the defensive from the pressures and expectations of the outside world simultaneously. This can take years to overcome, or very quickly, for others. What is important is the Heraclean effort and bravery it takes to not only accept one's true self, but to declare it to the world. 
Once overcome, however, the release felt and liberation that permeates the individual is indescribable, but it is essentially a rebirth for the individual. It is this process which I will try to convey in the following piece. It is a collage of various real-life Kamenite stories of others and myself. Every Kamenite story is personal and unique to the individual, but similar experiences do emerge. On that note, I hope you enjoy it and apply the gravity of thought to this piece that such a subject deserves. So this next piece is um, actually a rewrite of one of the first pieces I did for the creative writing group. It's uh, essentially it's a common it's a commonized story essentially. Um, both elements of it is from my personal commonite, and other elements are from the stories of others which have incorporated into the work. And as we as anyone that has had a commonite, it it's mythological in proportions and the amount of drama it entails. So I thought this piece would be appropriate for the subject matter. So I'll get on with it. Um, so this piece is entitled Finding Otherworld. In a malignant darkness of tormented spirit, every despairing thought becomes ragged spikes of steely claws and bloody thorns. Within this vessel of sinful flesh lie infinitely shattered shards of anguish, which accurately burn away all desire. From languid torrents of sanguine tears, of crippled sentiment, do finally fall, to maliciously drown Prometheus's faltering flame. And this cerebral malady did come forth from self-righteous contempt and poisonous judgment of militant zealots and counterfeit saints. In this void where eternal night rose primordial suffering, a solitary spark of tenacious light illuminates internal dark. It is hope that does preserve the shining radiance, for its glow protects wounded spirit in final refuge, until at last constricted thorns wither from stunted mind. And daylight dawns upon thorn deeps a frozen soul. Fullest luminance swelled in abundance, as Providence's hand did pettingly guide this lonely being to fraternal kindred. So I walked under shining skies of drifting rainbows, as cherished companions of fellow elk shepherd my path. They delivered me to utopia gate of fairy realms. Where music stirred my sleeping mind and silent heart. Where I danced in liberated pride. As shimmering showers of prismatic light did cocoon me in protective embrace. Amongst these strange and beautiful creatures, I have found where I belong. Within this garden of celestial delight. The next piece that I'm going to read is a personal piece. Uh, a poem that I wrote a few years ago and it's called she said, she said, you know you're not being fair to yourself or to anybody else, and especially to me. She started to say it when I was three. But I was too young to understand what she was talking about, too young to even care. 
She said it again when I was seven, especially when I prayed to heaven about the huge mistake that God had made. And now in the morning, would he please make it right? But I didn't get an answer from heaven in dawn's early light. No putting the things back in place. Still the little boy thing there, where it shouldn't have had a space. And I cried for weeks to no avail. Tears in secret, rubbed hurriedly away, so as not to leave their betrayal upon my face. She said, I told you that, but my wisdom you chose to ignore. I don't think I'll bother you any more. And still in the back of my mind, she was hovering there, as I played in secret with my sister's dolls and read her bunty comic when no one was at home, scared of being found and my secret exposed. She was still whispering, you're not being fair to me or anybody else. When I was 17, she was there again when I stole my sister's dresses and shoes just to stop the pain, to stop the terror of being found out. I waited again until everyone was out. Scared of retribution and aversion therapy. Tired of being forced to be somebody else. Not me. Forced by an unforgiving state who believed that the existence of such as I in the universe they had made was not normal or allowed and could not be. After aeons of hiding, denial and forced shame she appeared again. But this time she stayed, and we became the closest of friends. I became free, because I finally realised that I was her, and she was me. The mistakes that the silent God had made were finally put to right. The wrong assumptions about the state of my mind finally changed. And it didn't happen overnight. It was sometimes hard, and it didn't happen without a fight. It cost a lot, but that's a story for another time. Because nowadays, she and me feel fine. Yes, she finally came to stay, and we're both one. But she has the last word when she now says, Hey hon, this is great. And we are free, because I am you, and you are always me. Hello. Okay, so Hello. Um, yeah, we're not really sure where we are in the podcast, but um, we are talking about, you're, you're about, you've just read, we've mm-hmm. just listened to, hopefully the audience has just listened to, um, Jennifer reading, um, she said. Yeah. Um, and from from that, it's a very human poem. Do you want to tell us a little bit about its history and what it means? Yeah, to it, well, it's autobiographical, really. Um, it still gets to me because it is so. Um, it reminds me of times that were tough, um, but it's also about the the 
awakening, I suppose. Yeah. The awakening of eventually uh, becoming the person that I always was. Um. So it's got it's got a sort of double whammy effect for me, and I still get upset sometimes when I read it. Uh, I mean, even talking about it, I'm getting a bit emotional um, because it is it it is what happened to me. It is my actual history. Yeah. Um, the only way that I could talk about my history was to to make this character she, and we never get to know her name until near the end of the poem. And it's Jennifer because she and Jennifer are one of the same and the same as who I am. That's who I am as a person. So for me, it, it is quite emotive. Um, I wrote it, I think, to, to try and explain to people what kind of things occur when you're transgender, especially my generation. My generation of trans women could never, ever come out and say, well, I couldn't say to my daddy, look, I think I'm a girl. Because yeah. he said, don't be bloody stupid and give me a pit belt. Um, so for me, it, it it's a way of trying to explain that to people, to explain what trans people go through. There's not something that you think, oh, I think I'll become a woman tomorrow or I'll become a man tomorrow. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. So for me, it is, it is very personal and it is part of my history. Yeah, it's... Um I remember the first time hearing it. It was just that real, wow. That's that's such a such a raw and really honest expression of what what a person goes through, and it and it opened it it genuinely opened my eyes to that experience, and and I think you know, in for a lot, I think for a lot of the listeners that will be you know i hope i defy anybody to hear that poem and not have we take tear in their eye because i know that i did um definitely um and i still even i can't even i can't even read it and as as we've been going through and that we've been like doing the zine i've been sort of skipping over it because i think oh no if i start reading that i'm gonna (laughs) end up in a a puddle and, and i mean i'd not i must have read it about 18 months ago I think at, at the Monday Night Cure that was the last the, the first time I ever read it publicly um, and even now um, I'll glance at it but I won't read it yeah because it just you know I turn into a blubbing heap <laughs> yeah but I think it's really important to have those markers as poets it's really yes. important to have those markers yeah I think it is that say um, this was a point in my life that I yeah. had to accept me yeah, and for me, I mean, a lot of the stuff I write because it's it's based in Yorkshire. It's based about people that I know, um, and I use a lot of Yorkshire humour in what I write. Humour that in what I write. Um, that was that was me laid bare. Yeah, you know that was that was my soul being laid bare, which I don't often do in my poetry, um, but that was. Oh, well, thank you very much for sharing it with us. You're welcome. And um, for putting it out in the world. I know how, how big a deal that is to have something that is a piece of you out there in existence when it's so honest. Thanks very much. Thank you. Lucretia de' Medici, Duchess of Ferrara, was a 16th century noblewoman who was married to a jealous and possessive husband at the age of 16. She was the daughter of the great house of Medici. 
Her life was not a particularly happy one, and it was rumoured that her husband took her life through the use of poison when she was merely 17. Also, he also he could marry his third wife. The inspiration for this piece came from her portrait, which is attributed to Agnolio Bronzino. This is not a poetic piece by a letter, a letter to her husband, which she intended him to find after her death. In it, I have envisioned one interpretation of what she would have said to him during life if the conventions at the time had allowed. I have given her a voice to be heard and her defiance to be known, so that, so that in the end he may know that she won, not him, that she was never his to possess. Please enjoy. From Lucretia to her husband, the Duke of Ferrer. Most reviled husband, in thine eyes your favour, a cheap glass bauble to thee, daughter of Renzi, which lies upon my breast, lay claims to my body and soul. In mine, however, it is the frozen, fiery orb of my heart, which you can never claim, unless thou would sacrifice your prize, for then thou would have not. So it is what this cold heart that thou has chiseled from my chest with sinful purpose of the foil serpent of jealousy, that I will forever defy you, Defy, defy you my approving speech, the favour of my unguarded smile, or even a simple blush, at the least. You have been made believe that commands thine has given have brought me to heal, like some errant dog or willful child, of which I am not. I am born of the house of Medici, whose noble creed shall do me well as it has those of my illustrious ancestors, who may not be as grand and high as those, but greater in nobility of spirit and beloved by the citizens of whom they rule justly. I have made haste slowly in my defiance of thy, thine aristocratically archaic countenance and thine and thy misogynistic proprieties. I have defied thou in every smallest gesture, action and inaction. For while thou may do as thou please with myself, if open defiance is discerned, thou is too dim-witted, <laughs> product of thine ancestral heritage, no doubt, to discern the subtle ways of a woman's defiance, of the subtlety of the woman of the Medici, of the heir of Lorenzo il Magnifico. Finally, I relate my most ingenious defiance of thy most flaccid husband. The rose, the rose scented wine, thy not so subtly mixed with Belladonna, the tale of your Borgia heritage, <laughs> I gladly received for this blessed Alexa permits me leave of you in the gentle sleep of death. Know this, that it was in the end mine, not thine, well was done. Lucretia de, Med de Medici, 1561. Uh, this next piece is called The Lac Duchess, 
and it's based on a poet uh, by Browning about uh, Lucretia Ferreira, uh, who lived in about the 1500s. Uh, she married uh, the Duke of Ferrara when she was 16, and by the time she was 17, she was dead. We know what the Duke thought, uh, because that's what Browning's poem's about, but this is a letter from Lucretia to her father. So it's entitled, Lucretia Ferrara's Imagined Letter to Her Father, 1561. To his magnificence, the Grand Duke of Tuscany, Cosimo di Lamidamici, 10th day of April in our Saviour's year, 1561. I send greetings, dear father, and hope all is well in Tuscany, my long-remembered and sorely missed home. I write these lines in hope that you will give consideration to these my heavy writings and thoughts that I must impart to you by my hand with a faltering heart. I do not wish to say these words to you, for I only wish you great joy at my joyful betrothal state. But alas, this is not so. O oh, Father, thou hast put me in peril from this man, my husband, this Duke Ferrara, for he is a cruel man. He is not at all the man you thought as a fitting husband for me. By your politicking with this man, Thou hast unwittingly betrayed my love that I gave in my duty to our house Medici by joining our two great houses together. This Alfonso, who with the kind and overflowing words of romance and worldly wisdom, words that I find now untrue, at first my heart enthralled, but his true face and nature by these romancings, along with courtly jesters, he hid. He is aloof and withdrawn and looks down on my station, as is his wont, quick to remind me of his family's long, proud heritage. The beautiful white mare you graciously presented me with as a wedding gift he calls the white mule. Yet she is a creature of great art, as graceful as a swan, and has perhaps become my greatest companion. When I came here to Ferrara, I came with the naive, girlish intent to bring gracefulness and pleasure to this Alfonso's estate, to build a reputation for hospitality and charitable acts, but my efforts have been met with naught but rebuff and criticism. This duke, whose eyes are not inflamed with the love that I thought would blossom in time, but are burning with the fires of a cruel jealousy and sometimes tinged with embers of a lustful evil that I do not understand. I love you, dearest father, yet I am doomed by your politicking as you search for your own advantage of title and history for our own family, Medici. I will bear no children for this duke. There will be no grandchildren for Medici and there will be no history for me except one of melancholy. Signed, Lucretia Medici Ferrara. I thought I'd finish this piece off with uh, a small poem. It's called I Only Sing in the Moonlight, which is dedicated to Lucretia.
I only sing in the moonlight because the sun's rays are much too bright. The songs I sing only belong in the night to be heard by the ghostly moon for only in her pale ethereal light can my heart soar and pour the poison of love unrequited upon her altar of rain. And I can be free of the pain of love destroyed and the failures of passion's embrace leave my forlorn but yet still hopeful face. I only sing in the moonlight because the sun's rays are much too bright. The songs I sing only belong in the night. Well, I wanted you to start this, Philip, not me. <laughs> um, writing Rainbows. Um, a very, very interesting project. I've enjoyed it so much. Uh, and we've had some laughs. Um, I still don't like the sound of my voice. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, but it's been good. You know, except for things like phones going off and, you know, all that silly stuff like that. Yeah, the Rise and Rainbows podcast has been really good crack. Uh, <laughs> you cute awkwardness. <laughs> <laughs> um, all the pieces are amazing. Yeah. And I know how self-serving that sounds since half of them are mine. <laughs> so I do apologise about that. Um, but yeah, um, so the, with all the different subjects covered with all the pieces, um, you get... A cross section of what we kind of do, uh, which is most important. So, in, enjoy. 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 Enjoy it. Yeah, try to enjoy it. Yeah. And if you want to get on in an action, you can just talk to anyone associated with the creative writing group in Rainbow, and we'll get you signed up to ha to do some writing. <laughs> yes, if you want. To, yes. But you must be warned that they're all mad. We're all crazy. <laughs> most of the best. Hi everybody, um, so I just wanted to say thank you for listening um, I'm sneaking back in to do the little thank yous to everybody um, Thank you to Philip and Jennifer for um, their amazing work um, Hopefully you've really enjoyed the podcast Do the social media thing, like share, subscribe um, Tell your granny, tell your mum, tell your next neighbour Get them listening and share this please uh, and let us know that you really like the work that we're doing. A uh, big thank you to the Irish Writers' Centre for giving me the opportunity to be the community writer in residence with the Rainbow Project. Big thank you to the Rainbow Project for having me and to the creative writing group there um, for being really receptive to my ideas. Um, also, big thank you to the Arts Council of Northern Ireland for funding this project. Uh, this was the project itself has ended uh, the podcasts will continue and also the zine if you haven't if you if you get a chance to get a copy of the zine you can get in touch with us through the rainbow project and ask for a copy and i'm sure we can we can try and sort you out um there it's a, it's lovely it's uh, designed to mirror the podcast but stuff in podcast not in zine stuff in zine not in podcast um, I think that's it. Thank you very much for listening. Um, cheers. Uh, remember to like, subscribe and all of that wonderful fun stuff. And uh, 
ਸਿਗਰੀਟ